You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. This episode is entitled Palm Sunday and Climate Refugees. I wonder what part of the Christian tradition you come from. Would you define yourself as, uh, and these are terms of my own making, I guess, as liturgists, people who follow the church calendar, the lectionary, which is the set readings for the year, and march faithfully through Palm Sunday through to Easter and have followed Lent and so on? Or are you more of the tradition where you pick a, a book of the Bible and you read through it, and that's what church presents? Well, I went to church last Sunday, and I should say this is not a criticism as such. Um, it's just merely um, sharing an account or um, some reflections. As I went to church, and it was Palm Sunday, so I'm recording on Monday night, the Monday, almost Tuesday, uh, after Palm Sunday, and we had uh, our regular sermon series on 1 Corinthians, so I got to hear about uh, incest and uh, excommunication which was interesting, to say the least, and made me think a bit about the word excommunication and where I've heard about big churches where there's been shunning and people being removed from the church for issues I wouldn't have thought worth it. And, and so I react a bit to it, in a sense, um, notwithstanding the importance of the material, blah, blah, blah. But the point was I went to church and there was a little bit said about Palm Sunday, but not much. Let me contrast that with... Um, conversation I had with somebody, and I talked about the Palm Sunday rally. Now, I'm a bit of an inactivist at the moment, and unless I'm well-planned and think about things ahead of time and organise all the usual things that I do on a Sunday to be done another day, then I'm not going to make these sorts of things, and always in the back of my mind is my thesis at the moment. Yeah, postgraduate study is a bit of a shackle at times. So I didn't make it yet again, but I have marched before I don't think on Palm Sunday, but for various things that Palm Sunday's had marches for, I'll talk about that in a minute. And the person kind of turned up their nose and said, uh, or questioned why it was that Palm Sunday had to be a thing for refugees. Now, I, I tried not really to react to that. I mean, yeah, okay, so people are entitled to that view. But it, it strikes me as that kind of idea that uh, events in the church calendar are to be kept, quote-unquote, pure. Another conversation with someone about a year ago, and I was asked by TIA here in Australia, I think it's called TIA Fund now, so Evangelical Relief Fund, to contribute to a series of Lenten studies, and I did the groaning creation from Romans 8, and that was the overall theme. And the person I was talking to thought, that's simply not what you do. That's not a Lenten study at all. You meant to stick to the script, which is... Um, Palm Sunday and you know, all the elements that lead up to the, the cross and resurrection. 
So there's a view that the church calendar is something that should be kept pure, and then there's another view that doesn't pay it a lot of mind, and I like to sit somewhere in between. And so the rest of the program is me thinking just a little bit about the whole issue of Palm Sunday, recounting briefly, uh, very briefly as it seems, uh, the origin of the Sunday Palm Sunday marches, and a little bit about what I think about the connection between what goes on inside the church and what happens outside. And then finally tie things to uh, climate change. I mean, you expect that from this podcast, right? And not always, obviously. Uh, it doesn't have to be for various reasons. But if people are marching about migrants and refugees on, on Palm Sunday and what some are consider not very fair treatment or compassionate or just treatment and we know that climate change is creating refugees and um, I may have spoken about this in the past in the past episode I talk about this sort of thing a lot so I can't quite remember but I'll touch upon that from my book A Climate of Justice so we'll, we'll tie things together the version of Palm Sunday in John chapter 12 reads as the following The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they had heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. A lovely bit of overstatement, but maybe not quite so. Now, Passover, as you might very well be aware, was a time of great tension. It still is to this day, I understand, in in, uh, Jerusalem. But It's the great story of the founding of Israel as God's people, their liberation from slavery under Pharaoh. And it's a story that was told and retold and had special poignancy for the Jews who'd spent a lot of time under various tyrants or rulers, whether it was Pharaoh, as they saw in their past, or it was the kings of Babylon and Persia, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And so there was always a sense of expectancy. It wasn't unusual for someone to proclaim themselves as Messiah, Israel's king about this time, and lead an insurgency, and invariably the Romans would put it down in a very bloody and brutal fashion. There was a very strong sense, of course, of Jew- uh, Jewish nationalism, which is in inextricably tied up with religion. It's only in the modern period that, in the West at least, we seek to separate them, and with good reason in many ways. I don't think Christians should seek to wed nationalism to religion. I think we're seeing the results of that in the United States with a special form of civil religion. It's not the same thing as saying Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. It's, of course, very much tied to a sense of militarism, 
uh, for many, but also pious hope. Now, the, the quote, the bit where it says, as it is written, is from Zechariah 9.9, which is a prophecy of freedom from war against Israel. It's about the humbling of Israel's enemies, those that surrounded it and, and sought to bring it down. It speaks of the extinction of the kingdom from sea to sea. So it's not just a defensive victory in a sense, but um, Israel becoming the greatest empire of its age and yet ruled by a humble ruler, one who, who rides in not on a war horse, but on a donkey's colt. It's interesting in a sense that this expression, so ironically spoken by the Pharisees, you see, you can do nothing, look, the world has gone after him. And straight after this story, we find Greeks approaching Jesus. And then Jesus announces that pretty much the turning point has been reached. But the whole image of Jesus coming as a king on a donkey ultimately totally removes the idea of victory over the nations. But instead, following uh, John's logic, there's a victory over sin, death, and the Satan, who lurks in the background through most of John's gospel. Now, I don't know where you stand on the demonic. Uh, Walter Wink has some fascinating things to say about uh, the demonic as being a manifestation of the corporate evil of a situation without being purely a sociological phenomena. I'm still tending to the, the view of some kind of disembodied sense of evil, but turning around every five minutes and saying, the devil made me do it, like um, a famous TV evangelist, um, is, is a significant cop-out. But the cross as being a victory over Satan is a very strong message from John, not a victory over the nations, not a victory over Rome, not directly at any rate, and ultimately the gospel wins a victory over Rome and loses at the same time, if you think about the Constantinian settlement. But the cross is the ultimate act of non-violence, not of violent military action. And it's worth pointing out too, and here's just a little tickle from the reading I've been doing for my thesis, that, of course, at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus is buried in a garden. Mary Magdalene goes to embalm his body and runs into him thinking that he was the gardener on the first day of the week. So Jesus is portrayed as the second Adam. And again, this is why I say you can't get around the fact that creation is to be renewed, that that's central to the gospel, not just the salvation of souls that get uh, transcended up into or transported up into heaven. And I'm still reading this in Anglican liturgy, talking about heaven in a ambiguous and unhelpful way, I think, and our hymnody. But also, following Walter Brueggemann, the idea that uh, the man is created out of the dust of the earth and then placed in the garden is, is royal language. And so we come back to then the second Adam being king, and not just of Israel, but of the whole earth. It's a new creation project. So what about the Palm Sunday marches then? Well, apparently it started in the 80s uh, as anti anti-nuclear marches. And it would be wishful thinking, oversight, I'm not sure, to, to think that we've totally avoided that issue when you have um, Pakistan and India having nuclear weapons, the North Koreans have, having nuclear weapons. Um, but, of course, the only country to use 
nuclear weapons in the theater of war has been in the United States. So anybody, anybody at all having them is not a good thing, and there have been cases where we've come close to the brink of nuclear war. Now, so of course, some Christians welcome nuclear weapons because it brings on the end times, and that others, so, you know, it's not a welcome, it's a worrisome eschatology. In 2003, the march in Australia was dedicated to the Iraq war, and I didn't march at that, but I marched another march against that. I had the great honour of being, as a, as a group, told by a Prime Minister at the time that we were giving comfort to Saddam Hussein, which is kind of curious because I thought we were uh, trying to bring comfort to the people of Iraq who would invariably suffer directly as a result of Allied bombing. And numbers flagged over the years until in 2014, it was revived as an event for refugees. So what's the connection, just quickly before the break? Well, Jesus marches into Jerusalem to bring a kingdom of peace, justice and non-violence. And it's not simply a religious act. It's very much a political act as a political statement, which is not the same as saying that Jesus was literally um, re-establishing Israel which is not saying that he wanted to establish a political party or set up an army and overthrow Caesar. Not directly, at any rate. Um, it's not a political exercise in the modern party political sense in which we understand it, but invariably religion and politics were tied together. And Jesus, in wanting to deal with the root cause of everything, uh, sin and death and the Satan, means a worldly transformation, even if that doesn't happen everywhere all at once that everyone buys into the kingdom agenda, yet nonetheless, it's a kingdom of peace, justice and non-violence, even if it brings the sword in dividing people. So the fact that people chose Palm Sunday, who weren't necessarily churchgoers, to march for uh, nuclear disarmament against war and for refugees who are not treated well globally, particularly speaking, and mandatory detention, you'd have to wonder whether or not you can match that against Christian principles. I know I'm being a bit oblique here, but you understand. So there's echoes of the gospel in our culture still, and this is to be encouraged, I think. There are lots of people who won't go to church on a Sunday, not even if it's Palm Sunday, but they will march for things that they believe in. And imagine if they see churches who are now known for tax dodging and being homophobic and uh, for sexual licentiousness dramas, you know, uh, issues of um, abuse and so on. Imagine instead you saw Christians marching for the things that those in the outside world cared about and reflect kingdom values of peace and justice. So I think marching for issues like refugees is an embodiment of the kingdom. The gospel is not just a message to proclaim, even though gospel literally means a, a, a pronouncement, an announcement. It's embodying the kingdom as now and not yet, reflecting the values of the coming kingdom that it, because it's been established, but knowing full well that our marching doesn't achieve, it doesn't bring the kingdom in. But if you believe you're a member of the kingdom now, why would you not march for something so significant? Because everybody will have a home in the kingdom. That's the message, isn't it? Um, that to be part of the kingdom is to have a home with God, not up in heaven in this embodied sense, but a, a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. 
And uh, there's been various campaigns that have, have proclaimed or envisaged Jesus as refugee Jesus. If you think about what happened in Egypt and how he, um, the, how that story is told. And finally, too, I think of the whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. So to suggest that it's not keeping um, uh, this whole Palm Sunday religiously pure by marching for what is understood as a, a social justice issue or a secular issue is completely missing the mark, I think. More of that in the second half of the program. program after the short musical interlude. In this half of the program, I want to read to you a bit, pick the eyes out of A Climate of Justice, which is a book I wrote, oh gee, I'd have to check the date now. It's about time to write another book, I feel. I wrote this in 2017 for the Justice Conference here in, in Australia, in Melbourne. Let me read to you from the chapter entitled Fortress Western World. The child who changed the narrative. Syria has been in the news all too often for all the wrong reasons. Civil war has been going on since 2011 between forces loyal to the president Bashar al-Assad and anti-government protesters. Add to that jihadist militants and the so-called Islamic State, ISIS, and you have a bloody conflict. Islamic sectarianism also plays a role between the president's Shia sect and the Sunni majority. The politics is further complicated further complicated by Kurds to the north and foreign involvement from Russians and Iranian uh, involvement propping up the government to that of the US-led coalition. The conflict is ugly and has included the use of chemical weapons, allegedly not just by government forces, but also by ISIS. In March of 2016, the number of refugees to have fled Syria exceeded 4.5 million, with an estimated further 6.5 million people internally displaced. The UN estimated that over $3 billion, was, uh, that's the US I've no doubt, uh, was required to provide for the humanitarian needs during 2016. Many of those internally displaced have been beyond humanitarian aid due to the unwillingness of the warring parties to provide safe passage to aid workers. To date, that's when I wrote it, uh, the vast majority of refugees have relocated to Turkey, Lebanon and Jordan. Some have made it to Europe, although by no means not all successfully. One of the problems with refugees is that it's very easy to see them as a faceless mass of humanity, and this sometimes is used to depersonalise, dehumanise, demonise or scapegoat them. The opposite risk when writing about refugees and their plight is to focus on the story of one individual and make them into a project rather than a person, as Eugene Cho might say. We take from their humanity rather than add to it. Yet stories can also be valuable, even though they may be sad ones. This brings us to the haunting images of three-year-old Alan Kurdi. Alan and his brother came from the northern Syrian town of Kobani, where fighting between Kurds and Islamic insurgents has been particularly fierce. Alan was one of 12 Syrians who drowned attempting 
to reach the Greek island of Kos in two boats. This young boy's body was washed up on a beach not far from the resort town of Bodrum, dressed in a bright red t-shirt and shorts. A second image of a Turkish policeman gingerly carrying the boy's body away from the beach went viral on the social media site Twitter. Alan Curdy's fate is a grim reminder of the desperation of those fleeing the Syrian violence. Some 2,500 people also arrived in the Greek island of Lesbos that day in similarly unseaworthy vessels. It shouldn't take this sort of story to attract our attention to such a humanitarian crisis, but often it sharpens our focus. Looking at the images of Alan's body on the beach, I think of when my son was three years old. His main interests included Thomas the Tank Engine and Bob the Builder, not fleeing oppression. Of course, such tragic images are not always treated as they deserve to be, as in the 2001 Tampa incident demonstrates. In August of 2001, Norwegian freighter Tampa rescued 438 Afghan asylum seekers. The Australian government released photographs reportedly showing children who had been thrown overboard by their parents, allegedly to gain sympathy for their plight and find easy access into Australia. No such thing occurred. The former head of publicity of the Defence Department has since said that she was told there was, quote, to be nothing in the public forum which would humanise these people. We were quite stunned, end quote. Images can control how people respond to others in need, but they are not always enough, particularly when they are put in the hands of spin doctors. Now, I could say a lot about um, climate uh, refugee policy in Australia or other countries, but I do want to say this much, is that a Christian approach to these people would not necessarily be open the floodgates, as I've been accused of suggesting in the past, but would be far more compassionate than perhaps we've been. Now, I've picked this particular case, not just because it's really emotive, but because it would be easy to talk about people from the Pacific, because sea level is rising, because we're burning fossil fuels. People will lose their homes. People have lost their homes. There is no resettlement program into this country for climate refugees. There is, in fact, no official UN definition or recognition of climate refugees, although uh, some people are being taken in on that basis. Think, for example, the Carteret Islanders off mainland Papua New Guinea. But I choose this particular example partly because uh, the Trump administration attacked Syrian refugees, even though they received very little, which is a flag to um, his political alliances, allegiances and, and beliefs. And I know he's gone for the moment, but it does tell you a lot about the underbelly when you can use as a whipping boy one particular group of people doesn't even cross your shores in significant numbers. Where have we seen that before? Uh, but also because it seems a bit oblique, but it is directly related to climate change as a contributing factor. Let me uh, flip forward in the book a bit and try and tease this out for you. The situation in Syria is as complicated as it is dire. As Pinar Yazgan and co-authors note, Syria has been, quote, a country of multifaceted problems, unemployment, income inequality, suppression of minorities, suppression of opposition. Or as Peter Glick puts it, quote, conflicts are rarely, if ever, attributable to single causes. However, Glick 
does find that water and climatic conditions have impacted Syria's economic conditions. Syria is considered water scarce, with an annual average rainfall of less than 250 millimetres. In such a low rainfall region, rivers are critical. And unfortunately for Syria, regional water politics exists as the country shares all of its major rivers with its neighbours. Tensions exist between Syria, Jordan and Turkey over dams and control of water. Jordan and Syria have long been at loggerheads over Syrian damming of the Yarmouk River, while the flow of the Euphrates into Syria from Turkey has declined since 1990, after the completion of the Ataturk Dam. Furthermore, as Syria's population increases, so water per person per year decreases, with an increase from 3 million people in 1950 to 22 million in 2012, renewable water available Availability decreased from 5,500 metres cubed per person per year to less than 760 metres cubed per person per year. This level is categorised as scarce. Other resources of water in the region are wells from aquifers. These resources have been extensively exploited, leading to a drop in the water table and contamination of water supplies by salts and nitrites. Drought is not unknown in Syria, with six significant droughts recorded in the period 1900 to 2005. During these droughts, rainy season rainfall dropped to about a third of its normal value, but never for longer than about two seasons. However, from 2006 to 2011, Syria suffered prolonged droughts resulting in agricultural failures, disruptions to the economy and population displacement from rural to urban areas. This period has been described as, quote, the worst long-term drought and most severe set of crop failures since agricultural civilization began in the Fertile Crescent many millennia ago. A 2016 study looked in detail at 900 years of tree ring records to establish that the period 1998 to 2012 uh, is the driest in the record. Droughts of this order can act as multipliers of pre-existing socioeconomic pressures. Drought reduced cereal crop yields from about 50, uh, between about 50 and 70 percent. By late 2011, the drought had affected more than 2 to 3 million people, pushing them into extreme poverty. More than 1.5 million people were forced to migrate from rural to urban areas, although some debate these numbers. Indeed, across the region in the so-called Arab Spring, climate change-related factors have driven increasing food prices and hence political, social and economic instability. Um, Kate Burrows and Patrick Kinney note in a study that they did, that the interaction between climate change, migration and conflict are complex, poorly understood and context-specific. In the case of Syria, the high dependence of those displaced on agriculture uh, appears to provide the necessary context. In 20, a 2012 study found that a decrease in wintertime Mediterranean rainfall has likely occurred during the period 1902 to 2010, whose magnitude cannot be explained by natural changes. Ten of the twelve driest years since 1902 have occurred in the 20 years leading up to 2011. It appears that global warming has led to a change in a circulation known as the North Atlantic Oscillation. Uh, this measures the pressure difference between the low-pressure system located over Iceland and the high-pressure system near the Azores. It determines the path that rain-bearing systems take over Europe. Warming of the atmosphere appears to have changed the circulation to see storms over northern Europe, producing drier conditions over the Mediterranean during the cold season. This change in the North Atlantic Oscillation may be due to increase in sea surface temperatures in the Indian Ocean. There are complications with observational data sets and much work still needs to be done. Not everyone agrees there is a climatic connection.
Uh, one author calls for caution, given that, quote, research and data are both fairly recent and thus should be utilised with caution. Uh, but more recent studies since when I wrote the book have continued to point forward to the fact that it's likely that climate change has in fact affected this drought and hence has been a contributing factor to an already politically unstable environment, which in turn led to people seeking refuge. Can we speak of climate refugees? Well, we're seeing that the situation in Syria is complex. Um, Francois Germain thinks that there is a valuable definition um, that is climate refugee. The term environmental migration shifts the emphasis from migration as a disaster to be avoided to an adaption strategy to be facilitated. And you see this in the Pacific, that the great um, migrators and great movers. In this framework, migrants are not resourceless victims, but resourceful agents. And you can see the, the value in that. Don't disempower people. Um, but the phrase climate refugees reaffirms the political nature of forced migration due to climate change. It's our fossil fuels um, that have been burned, that have warmed the planet more than those of less developed nations. I put less developed in quote marks, you know what I mean, in terms of industrialization, etc. So it's important not to simplify the link between migration and climate. However, and this is a quote I love to use, Kevin Trenberth, who's a climatologist, um, writes the following in a journal article in the Climatic Change. The answer to the oft-asked question of whether an event is caused by climate change is that it is the wrong question. All weather events are affected by climate change because the environment in which they occur is warmer and moister than it used to be. So you ultimately need to engage in studies where you run the situation for an event with and without the modern fossil fuel concentration and work out how much more likely such an event would be uh, is in a world that's warmed by, by human activity. Um, and as, as I noted earlier, it, Syria has been an ongoing humanitarian crisis. It reveals uh, fragility of our systems and our compassion when you look at the reactions in various countries to asylum seekers. Uh, and secondly, it, the Syrian crisis demonstrates how the tendrils of climate change reach into a conflict in a way that might have been first overlooked. I could point to many other examples. You could talk about internal migration, which I guess isn't really migration, but internal movement in India due to irregular monsoonal rainfalls and collapsing ice sheets and catastrophic rain event and flooding events that occur there. As I said earlier, Han Island, part of the Carteret Group off Papua New Guinea, it's very obvious uh, that climate change is driving sea level rise and people are migrating to Bougainville now. But Syria, I think, is, is an important example to look at uh, because not only do you have people being forced from their homes directly by rising sea levels, but you see how climate change is a magnifier in conflict, it's a magnifier in the collapse of agriculture. Uh, if we have a four degrees Celsius world, which is a world that warms by four degrees over pre-industrial levels, and we're already well over one, then you cut greatly the yields of various cereal grains, like for soy it's like 50%. So it's just to bring it home uh, that there are people displaced now by climate change. From Syria, from the Pacific, uh, from other places. And that if we can't get our act together in the way in which we 
handle and process asylum seekers if we can't do better than locking them up and demonizing them and inventing information about them um, having the narrative about them controlled by certain political uh, interests then I think that we're not being true to kingdom values true Jesus himself doesn't say anything about uh, refugees about asylum seekers but he does march in Jerusalem to announce a kingdom not of war not of violence but of peace and of justice and tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. so I think there's a very strong reason if you get yourself together, as I have failed to do yet again, between Palm Sunday marches for asylum seekers and a variety of other things that people have marched for, and the Kingdom of God, and what is classically called evangelism, going out to the streets and marching alongside people of goodwill, people who wouldn't otherwise darken the doors of a church and given the way in which we behave and we squabble and we carry on why should they so whether it's palm sunday or at some other event extinction rebellion or whatever speaking up for the poor the defenseless the downtrodden those whose voice is denied those whose dignity is denied is a christian thing to do whether we ride donkeys or not thank you once more for listening and god bless you have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.